Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the Centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today's case study is one where the successful innovation at its core is delivering data to enable decision-making which matches the speed, scale and dynamism of the urban challenge and creates a means of bringing different city agencies and community actors together around a shared system-wide framework to better understand and solve the problem. Today I'm really excited to be talking to Aline Rachbani, who is the Technical Director for Urban Programming at World Vision International, and Karen Ramos, Public Engagement and Strategy Director at World Vision Honduras. Thank you both so much for joining me today, Aline and Karen. Hi, Vicky. Thank you for having us. Hi, Vicky. Thank you. It's good to have this talk today. So my first question, who is World Vision International and what is your urban footprint or organisational experience of urban programming? And Aline, could you cover this at a global level, please? World Vision is an international organisation. We're a Christian organisation. We work in humanitarian development and advocacy, focusing on the well-being of children and their families and communities in places that are affected by poverty, violence and natural disasters and other conflicts. We have started intentionally looking at urban vulnerability and urban poverty in 2008. We started an organizational initiative uh, to look at how urbanization and specifically the negative impacts of unplanned and unregulated urbanization impact the most vulnerable groups, especially children. And how do our models help us or hinder us from addressing their well-being in cities? So we did an action research and learning initiative in six countries over five years. We compiled massive learning on urban environments, and that shaped how we work in urban contexts today. The learning helped us develop different models and approaches for uh, more impact in cities. And currently, we're present in the world's most rapidly urbanizing countries and regions. And we have a growing urban footprint with, I think, at least we have 20% of our programs globally being located in cities and in towns across Africa, Asia, Latin America, and Eastern Europe. We just launched today uh, the second phase of our global strategy that extends for the next uh, three years. And urban ministry and urban programming are part of this strategy. And in the next three years, we will be scaling up our urban programming across the partnership of World Vision. So that means investing more in new resources and existing resources being repurposed for urban programs and ensuring that we're implementing our current urban programs with high impact and with good quality. In terms of organization, the urban programming team sits in the Transformational Development Unit, 
along with other teams that focus on partnering, gender and inclusion, social accountability. So basically, everyone that works on issues that are not sectors like education or health or livelihoods. So exciting times in terms of your urban programming and where you're going with it, but also really highlighting how World Vision is one of the organisations that's really invested a lot in understanding, learning and impact in urban spaces over the past few years. So what is the big idea or ideas behind your Cities for Children approach? So the Cities for Children framework is actually a framework that came out of the testing and learning that we did in the original organizational research that we did between 2008 and 2013. We compiled the learning, as I shared with you before, in a book called uh, Making Sense of the City. And in this book, we launched Cities for Children framework, which is our framework for addressing the children's vulnerabilities in urban contexts. So we identify uh, five interrelated domains of change that affect child well-being in cities. Those are healthy, safer, prosperous, resilient, and just cities. And we focus on the inclusion of the most vulnerable through policy change. So the difference between this framework and the work that we used to do traditionally in in programming in urban settings is that we're intentionally messaging our outcome focus through talking about the change that we would like to see to contribute to more prosperous, resilient, safer and healthy cities. We also identify within this framework a number of strategic pillars and enablers uh, of change that are essential for urban programming. And those are, for example, in the strategic pillars, those are social cohesion, urban governance, knowledge building, built environment, public space, and urban services. Those are four elements that are essential for uh, having impact in cities. So regardless of the development outcome that we're aiming to achieve, so if we're working on an education program or livelihoods program, we need to apply these four strategic pillars to help us address urban distinctives and be relevant to the urban context and have more impact. Additionally, we've identified some enablers of change that are existing already in an urban context. If if we capitalize on, we can reach more people and we can enhance the scale of the program. And those are partnerships, technology, urban planning and design and urban policy. And you can read more about those pillars and enablers of change on our website if you look at the Cities for Children framework on World Vision International website. Thanks. And we'll make sure that that's linked to in the podcast description. So I gave you the difficult challenge of selecting one of your main urban innovation learning sites from around the world to illustrate how the Cities for Children approach works in practice and asked you to select a particularly dynamic or interesting urban environment, which really helped illustrate your approach. And you chose your Valle de Sula initiative in Honduras. And Karen's been deeply involved in the implementation of that. Karen, could you help us better understand the scale and dimensions of the problem you're solving there, starting with some statistics and key facts, please? Sure, sure. I will start talking about Honduras. Honduras is a country that faces many fragilities from different perspectives, socioeconomic, environmental, and political conditions. To give you an idea, uh, many of our problems include homicides, 
domestic abuse and violence against children, youth, uh, women, income inequality, gender inequalities, corruption, impunity, high rates of migration and forced displacement by violence. By the Sul is a metropol metropolitan region of about 20 small and medium cities with uh, more than 2 million inhabitants. And it's paradoxical, but Valle de Sula is the most productive region in Honduras in economic terms. This, in this region, region, we generate two-thirds of the Honduras national domestic growth product. But at the same time, uh, we have very, very high rates of violence in this area. For give you an idea, from 2011 and 2014, this region was uh, recognized as one of the world's most dangerous metropolitan areas controlled by maras and gangs. Uh, San Pedro Sula, that is the main city of this region, had in, in those years more the rate of about 173 per 100,000 residents. Definitely in that time was the highest rates in the world outside of a war zone. Sadly, very sadly, this city was called at the time the murder capital of the world. Right now, the numbers haven't changed so much. The um, organized crime is uh, present and the street gangs continuing having uh, been a problem in this um, city. They are the authority in some of the neighborhoods where we work. About more than 34%, 35% of all homicides are gangs or organized crime related. Entire neighborhoods are abandoned for fear of gangs or the citizens are forced to pay extortions to these gangs. We call it this the uh, war tax if they want to, to stay at their homes. If not, they have to leave the neighborhoods. So uh, this is the situation in Valle de Sula right now. Thanks, Karen. And obviously one of your key populations are children living in Valle de Sula. How do all these manifest in their lives and what they experience on a daily basis? As I was saying, despite of this um, apparently good economic condition in Valle de Sula, in San Pedro Sula, Thousands of people living here are margin marginalized and they live in fragile neighborhoods affected by poverty, inequality. And boys and girls are the ones who are suffering most these conditions. Uh, the reality of violence in Vaidesula holds them, boys and girls, between two periods to be a victim or to be a perpetrator. So they are exposed to homicides, crime, organized crime, extortion, drug trafficking, including in their schools, where in the cases that they are going to school. And sometimes they or their parents don't have a choice. They have to leave the neighborhoods. If not, their boys, their girls will join gangs. The most vulnerable and social excluded group in this area are the boys and girls, but also the youth. As I said, they suffer uh, violations of their basic human race. They are lacking access to our services. Right now, they are not having access to school. 
So the situation has been worsened due to the pandemic. Children and boys in these neighborhoods live in very overcrowded uh, houses. Sometimes live four or five or more people in just one small room. So the vulnerability to abuse is very high for them. Also, many of these uh, boys and girls are orphaned or they live with just their grandparents or an older sibling because their parents were killed or were uh, left or migrated to the United States or, or other countries. This is the, the situation for boys and girls in Valle Thanks, Karen. It's obviously a very challenging context within which to work. So one of the inclusion dimensions we're focusing on in the report are integrated systems-wide approaches. Could you talk through what this looks like for Cities for Children and your work in Valle please? Aline, could you share what this looks like from a global perspective, please? So through the Cities for Children framework that I mentioned earlier, we look at the city as a system. We cannot work in isolation in one or two neighborhoods and claim that we're reaching or achieving impact. We really need to see these uh, neighborhoods that we work in in the bigger context of a city as a whole. And that's because of many factors. First, we cannot be everywhere as an organization. And although we would like to address different neighborhoods within the city because they're marginalized, they're fragile, they have pockets of poverty, we can't do everything. And in cities, there are so many partners, and this is an opportunity to build on. Partnerships is one of the enablers of change that I mentioned earlier. So through working with partners, we can reach more areas within the city, more neighborhoods, and ensure that all vulnerable and marginalized groups have their needs and uh, addressed and their rights fulfilled. So what we've learned from our previous work in urban settings is that in order to have sustainable impact, we have to design a program that has a combination of actions at multiple levels in the city. So we've identified neighborhood, district, and city level as the three tiers where we need to engage. And initiatives, for example, at the neighborhood level would entail mobilizing local youth, children, their families, different local partners that we work with to implement the interventions uh, based on the needs assessment that we would have done. And our role here would be a direct implementer at the neighborhood level, doing what we know how to do best. The World Vision has a long history of mobilizing grassroots action and communities at the local level. And then there's the district level. And this is where we try to find different partners that have similar mandate to ours. And we we act as a catalyst to start relationships between different partners to have collective action to improve the protection of children, social cohesion, or whatever outcomes we are looking to achieve. So this is a role of enabling coordinated action and a shared program planning. And then at the city level, our aim is to work with citywide actors to influence city authorities and uh, private actors and any other key actors at the city level to invest in programs, to invest in plans that don't leave anyone behind in the city and to influence, for example, the budget of the city to ensure that the needs of the most marginalized living in the most discriminated against neighborhoods are also met and included in different processes. So that's how we try to connect the neighborhood to district to a citywide level to ensure that we engage in an inclusive approach and process. 
Thanks, Aline. So there's lots of different roles and different engagement levels that you're doing at the same time. So Karen, could you give us a sense of what your work at these three different levels, so neighbourhood, district and citywide, looks like in the context of Via de Sula, please? Sure. I will connect what Aline already said about the neighbourhood, uh, district and city level interventions, the example of interventions or work that we are doing here in Via de Sula. I will start with neighborhood level. Here we promote uh, social cohesion among uh, people and community participation, including uh, families, churches, community leaders, the teachers, boys and girls, and other actors in the community. And working in actions uh, such as improving skills for life and employability for youth, and also for women in these uh, neighborhoods, creating uh, peace clubs, which is a, a methodology that we are using to work with boys and girls and the child protection mechanism and neighborhood levels. Also, we um, are working in alternative education programs for, for youth, for teachers, the positive parenting, which is uh, also an example of how are we working with the fathers, with, um, with the mothers to have a better relationship with their children. The emergency exit roads. This is an example also how we can uh, connect all the neighborhood actors to work together and to know what to do in case of an emergency in their neighborhoods. And these are just an examples of uh, interventions in this neighborhood level, but also in district level, we are implementing projects with different partners, being with uh, local government, for example, with the churches, with the private companies to leverage resources to improve uh, situations in, for boys and girls protection, education, access to basic services such as water and health for these boys and girls and their families in the communities. And also with the private sector, we are looking for opening employment opportunities for youth and also the access to financial services for entrepreneurs, including the youth, but also women. At citywide and national level, we are uh, leveraging and advocating for child protection uh, policies through these uh, high-level dialogue and as I said, at national, but also at citywide level. We are working in alliances with the private sector, with the Municipal uh, Child Protection Council in Sula, and other government instances there in the, in the area. We are influencing public policies, including a policy of childhood and adolescence, and a law for prevention and protection of people displaced by violence. These are examples of our work at national and also at citywide level. Thanks, Karen. I think it's amazing the scope of what you're you're doing in your work. And obviously, you've both touched on this, that partnerships are clearly a huge enabler of the scale that you're able to achieve. Could you talk a bit more about the whole ecosystem of the stakeholders that are involved? I think you've mentioned some of them, but I, I think there are others as well. And how you bring them all together, you know, what do the collective responsibility conversations sound like and what is World Vision's role in this? 
Well, we work with many partners in Valle de Sula. I will uh, give you some example of them. The, um, as I mentioned, the private companies, also the um, academia, we call it academia, but it is private and public universities, the media, the media partners, they are generating social awareness and to reduce social stigmatization in the city, uh, working with World Vision together. Local churches and faith leaders are a very important partner in Valle Sula, working not only at neighborhood level, but also at district level. Also, the city government, the municipality, and other government instances in Valle Sula are key partners for the work in not only for World Vision, but other civil society organizations working together in Valle Sula. World Vision role for bringing this, all these actors together at the beginning was just organize a table for, for dialogue. We invited all these actors to, to talk. They haven't been talking uh, in the past, so we invited them to hear their voices. We also invited uh, people from the communities and they started uh, listening about the problems, the real problems that the uh, neighborhoods in this um, city were facing. So we invited private sector to hear the voices of the youth, but also the government, the local government, to hear the perspective from the churches and from the private sector of how some things could be working better in the city and in the other neighborhoods. The churches has been also a voice for bringing some of these actors together in um, looking for peace in the city, looking for more social cohesion in not only at the neighborhood level, but also at the city level. So the role of our vision has been connecting all these actors to start planning together and working together. So I think that's really strong examples of there of how you've been bringing communities and other stakeholders much closer together around a, a shared understanding and maybe vision for solving the problems. What other kind of community level changes and engagement have you been able to achieve through the program for children and vulnerable populations? So some actions like skills for life, employability opportunities for youth, or the peace clubs for the um, boys and the girls are good examples. For instance, uh, this life skills program are equipping youth with soft skills, with values, but also with technical skills to prepare them for a job or also for a start a new business. Additionally, World Vision is working with the private companies to also open some opportunities for internships and jobs or financial access for these youth who are getting into the new world of the economic uh, environment. Other examples is the peace clubs. Uh, this is an example of threatening and child protection mechanism. Uh, we work with uh, volunteers in the local churches and also with uh, people from the community or from the neighborhood to start the clubs uh, where girls and boys can join and find a safe space to learn, to read, to play, to have 
friends, but also to receive uh, training on values and to have um, emotional connections with people who, who really care about them. Uh, as I said, keeping them safe and away from gangs and from other dangers. Churches and faith-based organizations are our main partners to work in these neighborhoods. Many times the churches are the only one who have access and can open World Vision access for some neighborhoods in violent areas. The churches are respected by the gangs, but also are respected for all the um, people in the neighborhoods. So uh, World Vision is seen as a trusted partner because we are working together with the church. So we can get into the neighborhoods and start working with them and start making change from inside the neighborhood. Thanks, Karen. I think another really strong aspect of your work there in Honduras has been how you've leveraged more diverse resourcing towards this work and really achieved a more inclusive financing model. Could you talk a bit about that journey, please? We started uh, at the beginning by the SULA with an internal seed funding, only $14,000 innovation fund from our World Vision Regional Office in Latin America. This was the phase one, and we started working uh, for the phase two. This phase two was only in our dreams, but we starting with, um, and we have $700,000 additional to support initiatives to address child labor and forced displacement um, situations in Bayezula, including funding from the UNHCR and the US Department of Labor. And then finally, we started the phase three. It's a full maturity of program when we have a diversification and sustainable resourcing portfolio. We have uh, more issues to address. Yeah, such as youth livelihoods and life skills, also child protection, violence prevention, education, uh, women empowerment, and other problems, and have additional donors. We have, for example, the Barrett Foundation, Gilden, and Gap and Avery companies working together with us to have this by the Sul initiative uh, sustainable in an economical way for now. Thanks, Karen. I mean, I think that's a spectacular journey that you've been on as an, as an innovation investment. Alina, are you seeing this kind of success in inclusive financing and or more diversifying of, of resources towards the rest of your urban work? Well, Vicky, unfortunately, this is not the norm in World Vision yet. The example of World Vision Honduras that Karen just shared is really an example of innovation in um, that organically grew a funding portfolio uh, based on strategic engagement, not only at the city of San Pedro Sula level, but at the level of the metropolitan area, engaging with private sector companies and engaging with international donors to build from the seed funding that we started with. So traditionally, World Vision uses child sponsorship funding that funds our long-term development programs in any context. Unfortunately, the child sponsorship funding comes with its challenges in urban areas uh, because it requires 
being able to monitor the children and because of problems like mobility, very high mobility and access to children uh, in, in places where uh, children don't have birth certifications, for example. Because of these issues, child sponsorship is sometimes very difficult to implement in urban areas. So in urban programs, we tend to rely in many places on grant funding. So based on the learning journey we have had in the urban pilots, we developed this uh, urban programming model, which is largely based on the premise that in urban contexts, there is an opportunity to, to diversify funding and depend less on international funding and more on resources and assets available at the city level. And uh, San Pedro Sula is a good example of a city that has very high GDP and is economically well established. So these are the types of resources that we will be looking at in the future to invest more in uh, getting funding from within the city, from within the country, and maximize impact through a new business model that doesn't depend only on child sponsorship funding. Thanks, Lean. And I think these aspects of self-disruption and how urban working is influencing organisations to work in new ways as well is, is really interesting. And we'll come a bit more to that later. Karen, what kind of inclusive outcomes have you achieved with this work in Via de Sula so far? We have um, impacted more than 70,000 boys and girls so far and more than 6,000 youth who lives in these fragile and conflict-affected neighborhoods in Valle de Sula. They have been uh, reached through our entrepreneurships and employability and income generation opportunities with these uh, alternative education programs. And also around 2,000 women have been included in entrepreneurship programs only for women. They have been accessed not only for training, but also for financial access from local partners. We have been uh, working in disaster prevention and risk security analysis, including these emergency exit roads built at the neighborhood level, which are um, important for them who have a plan to do something in case of disaster. Uh, we have been influencing local actors, but also national actors, to develop child protection actions more than 5,000 kids have been affected. About 40 local churches have been involved in these um, neighborhoods with child protection actions. We also have been influencing public policies, including this policy of childhood and adolescent, and also the law for prevention and protection of people displaced by violence at national level. The support for the local government plan have been very important. World Vision Honduras was able also to influence the municipal council for the guarantee of children's right to adjust, but also to adapt this year's operations plan to this new normal and invest more of their budget in, for uh, the well-being of the boys and girls at city level. Thanks, Karen. And I think you've described the impact of the three different tiers that you discussed before really well. I'd also like to find out what kind of adaptations you've had to make in the programme in relation to COVID-19, either on response or, or advocacy or different issues that you're working on. And I'd really like to hear both, Karen, from, from you on the work in Honduras, but also at a more global level after from you, Aline, please. I will start telling you that 
These various solar-poor neighborhoods have been greatly impacted by this COVID-19 pandemic. The urban poverty has been increased due to the loss of livelihoods, especially for these um, people who depend on the informal economy. Many jobs have been lost according to the Honduras Council of Private Enterprise. Around 400,000 formal jobs and more than 1 million jobs in the micro and informal sector have been lost in only in the urban areas in Honduras. Yeah, that's huge. So, uh, yes, and in response of this, World Vision Honduras started partnering or increased their partnering actions with these municipalities, with the national government, but also with some development agencies and private sectors. And at the neighborhood levels, uh, due to the local violence and mobility restrictions, World Vision is continuing collaborating with the existing partners there, the local church, but also the local organizations for distribution of food assistance, for distribution of hygiene kits, for cash and vouchers for vulnerable families, all cleaning supplies, personal protection equipment for the local health units, also water tanks because they lack also the access to water to these health facilities. And also we have been adapting technologies to continue the virtual trainings for, for the youth. For example, the soft skills enhancement and this entrepreneurship training has been adapted to a virtual modality. And as we know, this uh, youth has not access to internet. So our vision have been looking for enabling this access in, in some places like uh, the church of the school so they can have the access for the internet to have the training. World Vision Honduras is also ensuring that all the pre prevention and child protection mechanisms and messages are getting to the parents, are getting to the teachers, are getting to the neighborhoods. Today, World Vision Honduras has assisted about 60,000 people in these urban areas and about 35,000 of which are children. At the city level, we are continuing working with uh, not only with the municipalities, but also with World Food Program, with UNHCR, and also with um, uh, Ministry of Education and Health Ministry to continue the assistance uh, in these cities. Thanks, Karen. I mean, clearly all the partnerships that you already established set you up really well for this huge additional lift that you had to do and, and, and big adaptation. But I think the context in Honduras has been you've, you've had to continually adapt um, throughout the programme as you've been going along. And I think we'll, we'll come back to this again as well. Uh, so, Aline, finally on this, at a kind of global programming and advocacy perspective on your urban work in relation to COVID-19, what have been some of the key issues and activities you've been engaging with? World Vision started responding to COVID-19 in 17 countries and then increased to 27. And now we're responding to the COVID-19 across all the offices where we work in a truly global response. The objectives of our response have been to prevent the transmission of the virus, to strengthen healthcare systems and workers, to address the indirect impacts, such as impacts on livelihood, education, food security, and child protection, 
and to advocate for prioritizing children in government responses and UN agencies' responses. So those are the high-level four objectives of our response. And what we did in urban contexts is we've provided some recommendations for adapting the actions that we do under prevention, for example, or under strengthening healthcare systems and workers to be relevant to the urban contexts where we work. So urban slums and informal settlements are among the priority areas where World Vision is responding. We've done a quick mapping of our global footprint and the COVID response, and we are now responding to the virus transmission in 253 cities globally. We've also produced resources to help our advocacy staff connect with their local and national governments. We've developed policy asks and recommendations for both civil society organizations and NGOs working on the urban response, as well as for local and national governments and donors. We've started uh, to collect some evidence of the impact that we're doing in cities in our COVID response, and we're compiling these examples in case studies from different offices, portraying how we're using the citywide approach to address the COVID in cities. We also have published uh, some examples of agility in World Vision response to the virus, including an example from India that has an urban focus. Thanks, Aline. That's really impressive, given the scale of your response, that you've already been able to move so quickly towards documenting and sharing some of your experiences. And we'll make sure that we link to those resources in the case study as well. You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. So moving on to the kind of set of questions around innovation, one of the dimensions we're looking at is how the organisational approaches are really disrupting the status quo. So starting with a wider system or sector level view, how would you describe this for the Cities for Children framework, Aline? This approach helped us move from doing little impact through mobilising communities at the neighbourhood level to increasing our reach, influence and impact by engaging at the city level. And we've heard several examples from Karen on this engagement earlier. But this approach also challenged our uh, traditional way of working. Working in urban areas around so many other actors from government, private sector, civil society means two things. First, we can't work alone. If we want to really have an impact, we need to join forces with others. We need to build alliances and we need to pool resources. We need to develop partnering skills and we need to learn how to work with local partners. So doing things differently and in a way learning to let go. The second thing is you have to focus and become specialized in the area that you're addressing. And in order to establish credibility, and build capacity around this one issue and do it really well and to be considered partner of choice by other organizations. So this is not easy for organizations whose mandate is so broad, like World Vision, we work for the well-being of children. So where do we start from? And in urban areas, we really have to be very specific. So yes, we work for the well-being of children, but let's 
choose one area, for example, safety of children, for example, the health of children, and develop capacity and specialization in that so we can do it really well and we can have the sustainable impact that I was talking about. And there are many other actors who can cover other areas related to the well-being of children. So that's the beauty of urban environments where there is a broad selection of organizations and we can together identify the gaps and see who can do what and where. I have spoken about this before. The roles we play as an international NGO in the city are very different from the roles we've played in the past in rural contexts or even in refugee and migrant camps. We can't only be direct implementers. We have a wider role of facilitating and brokering relationships. And this really begs us to think about the skill set that is required for urban practitioners. This last point I'm going to make on this is we have to be comfortable in navigating along the humanitarian development and peace building nexus because increasingly conflicts and violence are happening mostly in cities, but the mechanisms of responding are still very siloed both among international NGOs and among donors. So what donors give us for a development program addressing poverty, for example, is different from humanitarian funding. So the approach that we have developed specifically for fragile contexts, including for fragile cities like San Pedro Sula, needs to be agile and flexible to address the emerging context changes that force us to move between the development and humanitarian response more frequently than we're used to. Thanks. And and could you and Karen talk a bit more about the context for this in, in San Pedro Sula? Because obviously, the, you know, there's this background of endemic violence and peace building is really important. But then there have been a number of emergencies that that really affected your work there during the course of your pro- of your programme. So we've already talked a bit about COVID-19, but I know there were previous changes in the community due to migration. Could you talk through that a bit more, uh, the context and how you had to adapt as a team, but also as a way of working? So in World Vision, we have developed a new approach for working in fragile contexts in the past uh, few years. And this approach was tested in a number of places, including in San Pedro Sula, looking specifically at uh, urban fragile context. So this approach challenges the linear thinking around crisis and development. The assumption is always that a crisis hits and then we respond and then we work on the recovery and then we can start with our development programming. But in reality and in most of the fragile cities and uh, fragile areas where we work, this is not the case. The context might be stable for a long time and then a crisis hits and it becomes a violent uh, city, it becomes a city that is hosting refugees or migrants, and then it calms down again, and then another crisis happens. So what we've developed is an approach that helps us remain relevant to the changing context while we're implementing the programs that we have identified as essential to improve the lives and well-being of the boys and girls who live in these environments. So it starts with a very good understanding of the context at city level or in the area where we're considering a fragile area, a very good understanding of the key drivers of vulnerability and fragility, and then understanding what are the needs and the issues in the context, and then developing a program that is relevant 
for addressing the current needs and the issues. Then taking a step back and looking at how can the scenario change for the better or for worse. And this is uh, the scenario planning exercise that we do. So we can take a step back and look at the program that we have developed and what changes do we need to implement if the scenario deteriorates or if it improves. So let's say in the San Pedro Sula uh, city where we're working, a possible deteriorating scenario would be a flooding that happens every year in some of the informal neighborhoods in San Pedro Sula. So how can we prepare to respond to these floods every year? How can we pre-position some partnerships to be able to respond very quickly to the changes as they happen? And how to include some preparedness measures in our current programming to be able to respond very quickly in case we start realizing that the scenario is deteriorating. So for all of this to work, a main component of this approach is to continuously monitor the context. And for that, we've developed a monitoring framework that does not only look at uh, monitoring the program progress and outcomes, but also looks at monitoring context and monitoring accountability with partners that we work with and with the local residents and communities that we work with. So understanding the context, uh, being able to notice how changes are happening and pre-positioning to address them is what makes this approach unique and what makes this approach relevant to fragile cities and fragile contexts in general. While World Vision Honduras is working with uh, people living in these urban neighborhoods, it's possible to understand better their needs and also monitor the changes on the possible, not only the current, but the potential changes inside the neighborhoods and around them and at city level and move quickly to adapt our programming and models. We have, for example, recently, even during the pandemic, many uh, people coming deported from other countries. So they have been getting again to these neighborhoods and we have been to work with the, with the leaders in the communities, with faith leaders, but also with government, with the local government to look or to bring opportunities for the people coming deported. We have to adapt our interventions. Uh, we have to getting, in this case, them access to, to the tools that the other youth are getting in the neighborhoods, but they are coming from other countries, but they have coming with, with the same needs to have opportunities inside Honduras. So we change, we open the, the doors for the people deported as an example, very quickly to avoid them to go again outside of the country. And also for the children, for the boys and girls right now, many people coming from the rural areas to the urban areas with, with their boys and girls coming to the neighborhoods at San Pedro Sula. We have to, including them in our peace clubs, we have to, including them very quickly in our education and soft skills initiatives to let them engage with the good things and not risking them to get into another uh, actions into the, the neighborhood. 
So you're well equipped to continuously adapt to all of the different changing contexts within the programme? Yes. So the other aspect that we're looking at in terms of innovation um, in the Urban Inclusion Report is around scalability. And obviously your framework identifies four enablers of scale, um, partnerships, technology, urban planning and design and urban policy. But could you talk more about wider success factors of scalability, both in the Honduras context and, and, and more broadly, and some of the things that you need to think about when adapting the framework to global contexts. Uh, Karen, could you start with what scalability looks like in, in Honduras, please? World Vision Honduras is still in, in piloting phase. However, we are starting similar programs in other Honduras urban regions, for instance, in Tegucigalpa City, the Honduras capital. To escalate the model uh, required adaptations to the specific context. In the case, for example, of Tegucigalpa, which is a political city, while Vaidasula is an economic hub, the approach should be different. However, in all the cases, the two sex factors are related more to the capabilities to work with partners and to work at neighborhood level and at city level with these partners. The diversified portfolio of projects and resources to feed them the needs of the neighborhood, the specific needs of the context, and also the differentiated needs of each of the neighborhoods in the same city. The ability to create connections and trust with these local key actors like churches, like faith-based organizations, and especially the leaders of the neighborhoods. These, uh, for me, are key success factors for this. Thanks, Karen. And Deline, obviously, you, you spend a lot of time investing in understanding these kind of enablers of scale. But what else are you still learning around, around adaptations and changes that are needed when you're applying these strategies and frameworks in the large number of cities in which you're working with around the world? I can talk about scalability at multiple levels, just a little bit um, to build on what Karen has uh, shared. So as you mentioned earlier, we, we are using the enablers of change in a way to in, enhance our reach and scale. And Karen talked a lot about partnerships, but what I would like to add is how partnerships allow us to reach multiple areas when it, within the same city. In some neighborhoods where we cannot be present, how we can build connections with other partners to, to achieve the impact that we want and to achieve the impact that we both would like to have for the well-being of boys and girls who live in these marginalized neighborhoods. So the approach of partnerships to be able to cover a bigger scale, using technology to reach a bigger number and mobile technology is a good example of being able to connect with a bigger number of local residents and partners in an efficient way. Uh, influencing urban planning and design I think it's important because many of those processes that exist for urban planning and design do not necessarily include voices of the local people. When they are included, it's not often the case that the people who live in marginalized spaces are also included. So this is to make sure that no one is left behind, that everyone who has the right to participate is participating. And the last one in the enablers is the urban policy. In many countries, 
we are seeing that governments are starting to put together urban policies. In some places, they're not there. But it's important to be able to reach scale of influence that we influence these urban policies as they are being developed. So what we do at country level is we encourage city to city learning through the staff who work in different urban programs across the country and sharing some good practices with local and national governments and other urban actors in the country. We have good examples from Bangladesh and India and Indonesia and in organizing urban learning workshops with other stakeholders from civil society to government actors uh, based on the programs that we have. And beyond one country, we have Inward Vision, an urban community of practice that helps us share learning through newsletters, developing case studies, uh, organizing webinars, so different urban practitioners from multiple contexts can learn from each other's practice and replicate when relevant and adapt to their context. We do have an urban guidance toolkit for scaling up our urban programming in the next three years. And we're just launching an e-learning module as a training, virtual training for staff based on all the learning that we've had from previous experiences and urban programs to build capacities of our urban practitioners in different countries. And the last point I'd like to mention is the sharing externally and influencing global urban discourse based on practice from programs that we have in urban areas. Uh, that's really a good, uh, that's really an important uh, part of our work. Thanks both. I think the scale of your knowledge management and learning functions as uh, internally, but also with partners is, is something to be proud of, as well as the extensive programming portfolio that you've got. So now just Asking you both to kind of take a step back and reflect, what are your main takeaways to share with other organisations based on your experience of working in these complex urban settings? I want to start saying that an organisation can't work alone in these settings. Working with local partners is critical for having success in these complex urban settings. The local churches, the based organisations have prove to us to be the most relevant actors to open the doors for organizations like World Vision in these complex urban uh, neighborhoods. It's the same example in other fragile and violent cities in, in Central America from the experience of World Vision. Also, starting with a flexible budget is very important not to be compromised with long-term results uh, with the donors, but starting with a flexible budget that allows to understand better the context, to establish the relationships with the partners, to understand the community or the neighborhood, how do they work, what are their main interests or their main issues, and to work with them, not for them, but with them, to plan the, the future that the neighborhood wants. And with this, starting to connect them with other neighborhoods, but also with the local and the national and the city level partners to have a more sustainable work for those neighborhoods. Thanks, Karen. Annaline, final thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Vicky. Three points uh, I'd like to share. Uh, the first one, building on what Karen was saying, we need to have flexible and adaptive models that allow us to respond to 
complex and dynamic emerging needs in cities. Again, cities are at the heart of the nexus of humanitarian development and peace building because of the recurring conflicts, violence, fragility that are resulting from unplanned urbanization and are leading to unplanned urbanization. So we really need to be able to look at the wider context and respond to the changes and the wider context, not at a smaller scale and not in a siloed approach of development versus humanitarian response. The second point is it's really important to focus on changing mindsets and skill sets for the urban practitioners to the donors and engaging with new donors who haven't traditionally engaged in addressing urban issues. I think this is really important because of the nature of the environments where we work now. Again, there's no siloed approach that works and an urban practitioner needs to be savvy of the different approaches required if we're responding to an urban crisis versus addressing urban livelihoods and alleviating poverty in another place. So there are different skill sets required and the the skill sets are also needed at the donor level to be understanding the context where we work and to develop some mechanisms to allow us to respond to the issues in the changing context. And the third point is really about localization. Karen mentioned a lot in her examples about working with local actors, but we also learned from COVID-19 how international NGOs were trapped in their countries where they live and they couldn't visit the countries where they implement programs, for example. And all the work happened largely by local organizations, by local governments. And in a way, it's making us think again about the role that international NGOs should have in an environment that has strong civil society, local civil society, uh, and local government that are working. So what is it that we can do to support the localization agenda, especially in urban environments? And I will stop at this one. Thanks both. So finally, what or where next for your work, both at Valle de Sula and, and Honduras and, and more broadly, and how can we keep in touch with what you're doing? I will start with a few words saying that Valle de Sula program is still growing for us. And our next steps are more focused on demonstrating that this work at neighborhood levels uh, combined with the efforts at city and national uh, level policies with uh, also in partnership with private companies and other actors can lead to a broadly and sustainable impact results. This will allow us not only to have the results we aim to the Sula, but also to, based on evidence, scale this uh, program to other cities, not only in Honduras, but also for the Central American countries. Thanks, Karen. And Aline, I think you've mentioned a couple of things already that's coming along, but... So I mentioned earlier that we're scaling up our urban programming. Urban programming is now part of a new strategic initiative for addressing key drivers of extreme vulnerability. And this strategic initiative will be implemented over the next three years in World Vision globally. And just to give you a bit of briefly background on that, we're looking at drivers of extreme vulnerability in two aspects. So we're looking at places and we're looking at issues 
in terms of places, we're identifying urban and fragile contexts as places where most vulnerable children are living. And in terms of accelerators, we're looking at gender and inclusion, climate action and pandemics such as COVID-19 and how they lead to extreme vulnerability of children, especially when those children are located in urban and fragile contexts. So in the next three years, we'll be investing more in our urban programming and gender programming and fragile context programming and climate action and responding better to pandemics. By scaling up the urban programming, as I mentioned earlier, in the next three years, we will be investing in more funding and doing better programming and having more impact in cities and urban areas where we work. We want to get the fundraising locally right, and that also builds on my earlier point on localization and also getting some resources from cities, from within cities, from within countries to support sustainable impact of our programming. And the last point is we will be focusing a lot on building capacities at organizational level, at multiple organizational levels to ensure that we have cadre of technical specialists who are able to support our practitioners if they're addressing urban poverty and vulnerability through our urban programs. So we have a busy three years coming up, but it's also very exciting to be thinking of the challenging questions that help us remain relevant in the contexts where we're working and in the most dangerous places where children are living and will be living in the next 10 years. Yeah, so I think really exciting developments, which are already build on the, building on the really solid foundations that you've already got. And, you know, it's been great to share these lessons and we look forward to hearing more. And, and we know you're very good at documenting your evidence and learning. So that's something that everyone in, in can benefit from. So how can we follow you and, and keep in touch? So you can learn more about our work by visiting World Vision website. Uh, we have pages for World Vision Honduras and for our urban programming. You can also follow World Vision Honduras on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can follow my personal accounts on Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll include all those in the show notes. Thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been fascinating to hear all about your work, your lessons, the successes you've been having. And I'm really excited that other audiences will be able to hear about this through our platforms as well. Thank you for having us, Vicky. We appreciate it. Thank you, Vicky. Having a great talk. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the Centre's 2020 Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.